Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host, Stephanie Sumner. looking Friday after oh, morning I was going to say not afternoon um, I hope you guys are all doing really well I was just going to point out that you've got a special helper this morning and that is your daughter Gwen I do I've got my daughter here uh, to participate in the podcast we do have special guests from time to time um, this one is a maths genius she can uh, tell you what is two plus two plus two what is it Brilliant. I think it's seven <laughs> Yeah, I haven't taught her how to do compound interest yet. Something she'll learn. <laughs> she will, yeah. And then present value calculations. Yep, it's going to be good. I don't know about you guys, but I'm so glad we're at the end of the week. Um, Brett, what are you going to do for the weekend this weekend? More blockies or? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, the odd blocky. Who knows? I might even watch some TV. There's, there's no AFL on this weekend, so I have to find something else to occupy the TV time. Well, even even uh, even the even the good TV shows are not being produced these days because of COVID. So, you know, your you great you know your great uh, shows like uh, Succession and uh, Billions, they're all on uh, pause at the moment. Shocking. There's going to be a huge gap in TV and movies for the. Uh, it's sort of hitting now, and uh, and it's going to get worse for probably the next year or two years. Yeah. Uh, with, with all kinds of productions halting. I bought a basketball last week. I'm going to go and hit a basketball court. Have you got a ring at home? No, not at home, but uh, at the the school down the road for me, they've got some rings. Perfect. I wonder... uh... I wonder, coming back to these TV shows, I wonder whether or not COVID uh, is the death of the sex scene. Uh, you know, what happens there? <laughs> Mannequins. <laughs> Mannequins. <laughs> Substitutes. CGI. It'd be very difficult to, to do those scenes from a metre and a half away. Yeah. <laughs> it's now improvisation sex scene, is it? <laughs> <laughs> And Joel, what are you going to do? I mean, the restrictions may ease slightly this weekend. So that's that's what Dan has dangled a little bit of a carrot, but but not too much. What do you think is going to happen? Oh, look, I think uh, I think Dan. I mean, Dan's sort of played his hand anyway. He uh, he's pretty much said that there's not going to be huge uh, relaxation to what's already planned. There might be some changes at the fringe or at the margin, but. The most material changes look like they're going to happen uh, around the end of October if everything sort of continues on its on its way. Mm. And a, a bit of a debate because last weekend I saw a lot of people sort of picnicking out in the the gardens um, in the city. Are people actually currently allowed to get together in in groups, or was that just a, a bit of an oversight and the police were letting that go? Does anyone know the rules? Uh, I have looked in. Well, my wife has looked into the rules because we were curious about this as well. Yeah. Um, and I think. The rule is that one person from a household is allowed to meet another person from a different household uh, outdoors right. for socialisation. So I think it's supposed to be only two people, but then also you could have one household going uh, out 
just by itself. Um, and, and I think picnics are okay, but trying to find anything on the government website that says picnics okay uh, is very hard because yeah. I don't think the government really wants people to be doing it en masse. However, there's a bunch of websites about things that you can do in Melbourne uh, and they've uh, been promoting that you can actually go for picnics. So like my assumption is is that the, the, the reporter or the blog writer um, has got an approval out of the government and, and they're the ones putting on their blog posts that you can do it, um, but the government's not making the rule all too public. Right. Um, it's, it's more of an observation. When I did my blocky last weekend and the weather was decent and there were a lot of people in the, the local parks, it, yeah. it looked to me like you'd have the families that would go out as a group of, say, four or five, and then the neighbouring family or other family they know would go out in their group of four or five and, and happen to just land a metre and a half apart. Right, right. <laughs> you know, from a distance, it would look like there was a group of ten or so, and you think, that doesn't look right. But yeah. you know, I'm, I'm sure they'd be assuming, well, hang on, we're just a family that happens to be sit in the park a metre and a half away from another one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> facing each other, having conversation. I think it's going to be really, really difficult to adhere to these kinds of rules, though, when the weather gets nicer. I think last weekend was sort of a prime example of people just wanting to get out and about and and sort of be a bit social and get outdoors. So while it was, you know, I I know they're not sticking exactly to the rules, it was still nice to actually see people utilising the parks. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And that's probably what makes it hard to, to relax the rules because if you relax the rules up to a certain point, people are so desperate to get out Mm. Their behaviour is going to be beyond what the rule yeah. allows, and that's going to contribute to a certain amount of of risk of spread. Mm-hmm. So, I, I guess when they try and set these rules, they're they're kind of shoot, trying to shoot at a moving target because if they set the rules somewhere, they're not entirely sure of what people's actual behaviour will be. Yeah. Uh, on on which side of those rules? And I, I guess it comes back to them not publicising that too too much and having to sort of dig deep to find anything on it so Mm. not too many people are doing it yeah and and that's um that's typical of any um uh, government response Mm. Uh, we see the same thing with the reserve bank uh what what they can do is they can announce the policy and the other thing they can do so they can set the rule and the other thing they can do is how they talk about the rule and the message that comes about uh from that yeah um so whether it's the Reserve Bank or whether it's a uh, um, pandemic response or, or, or any kind of public message mm. from government. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. Mm. But look, we better mm. kick off the first topic of the day. And, Joel, you've got some sort of important news and a, a bit of an update on policy changes that you're going to take Yeah. Well, look, this, this week's actually been uh, a relatively busy week for announcements regarding uh, various policy changes. Um but in, in, first of all, I probably uh, probably worthwhile just going through a few little important just news tidbits. Uh, Westpac this week fined one point three billion dollars in the largest ever corporate fine uh, here in Australia. It's a lot of money, uh, and that uh, that relates to the Austrac breaches that occurred um, over the over a five year period, which I believe date back to <coughs> last year and early part of this year. Uh, Westpac realised that some of their technology was uh, failing them in their um, oversight uh, with regards to transactions um, uh, that were taking place, and obviously some of these transactions were were going to sponsoring, you know, child abuse or child uh, exploitation. 
uh, it was found that Westpac actually knew of these issues as far as five years ago and decided to not do anything about them or not treat them with the seriousness. And then uh, ultimately it got to the point where they found themselves in a position where they had to self-report. So Oztrack have, uh, in the last two years, have collected uh, $1.3 billion from Westpac and $700 million from Commonwealth Bank with similar Oztrack breaches in regards to their ATM machines uh, being used as uh, money laundering and, uh, and, and cash cleaning uh, operations. Uh, so good bonuses at Oztrack. Yeah, so two billion dollars. Uh, the interesting thing is that I don't believe Oztrack actually found any of these. I think, well, certainly Westpac self-reported, and I believe even Commonwealth Bank might have self-reported as well. So, you've sort of got to wonder, you know, right now Oztrack are, are being seen as the, you know, the corporate regulator that's doing their job, but yet they never really caught any of these guys. Uh, <laughs> institutions that realised they'd done something wrong and then uh, self-reported themselves. Yeah. Um, so let, let's not be too quick to hail the, the work of Oztrack at this stage. Um, I also note that uh, the Know Nothing Gang, I Know Nothing Gang, are in front of the hotel's inquiry this week. Uh, Daniel Andrews <laughs> uh, is due to uh, face the, the heat today. Uh, Jenny McCarkos faced the heat yesterday. And so we've got more lies, denials and bullshit coming up over this week. And... Uh, and look, I guess, you know, ultimately, I mean, these, these clowns, if they were a head of a public corporation, you'd expect them to have lost their jobs. I mean, Rio Tinto executives uh, blew up an Aboriginal site and uh, and three senior executives, including the CEO, lost their jobs. You've got uh, these clowns that have blown up a state and yet they're, they're hailed yeah. as heroes. Uh, but um, then we also have... Uh, uh, some announcements in regards to policy. Uh, the federal government and, and Treasurer Josh Frydenberg has announced some changes to the consumer protection laws that uh, following the global financial crisis, uh, new laws were brought in by the Rudd government to protect uh, consumers from predatory lending. Um, obviously, a lot of the, uh, the, the poor loans that uh, largely were a result of the US uh, lending to uh, subprime lenders, but all governments tended to, to realise that there was probably some form of uh, issue around predatory lending that was going on uh, that helped exacerbate the, the financial difficulties that we found ourselves in. Uh, these laws are now being proposed to be scrapped because um, uh, Frydenberg has, has come out this week and said, as well as uh, the uh, Governor Lowe as well, uh, Philip Lowe from the Reserve Bank, has also mentioned that uh, these laws have perhaps gone a little bit too far in regards to putting the onus on banks and their ability to be able to loan without with, with immunity from being caught, um, you know, ha having you know taken advantage of weak borrowers. So um, policy uh, changes are, are being touted that uh, we're going to be moving from a lender beware approach to a borrower responsibility approach. Um, and, uh, and that banks at the moment, there's a suggestion that banks at the moment are, are too scared to lend uh, for fear of repercussion, that they haven't done enough work to ensure that the loan won't turn bad. Now, obviously, banks have been um, hit with this back in 2009, but then going through the, the Royal Commission uh, over the last couple of years and the changes coming out of that, um, there's obviously, you know, some banks are a little bit gun-shy at the moment. So... When credit freezes or when credit becomes hard to get, um, it becomes prohibitive or it becomes restrictive in the means in which we can pull ourselves out of an economic downturn. So uh, some important changes are, that are slated to, to go through there. 
I don't believe that this is going to uh, probably get an easy passage through Parliament because um, uh, it's going to require, uh, you know, that, that legislation to pass both houses of government. And uh, I'm pretty certain that, uh, that Labor will probably fight pretty hard to resist some of these changes that are being proposed right now. So we'll just have to watch this space. But the idea is that hopefully banks will be will be encouraged or can feel as though they can lend again without necessarily being on the hook for every loan that might go uh, might turn sour. In fact, Philip Lowe has made mention of the fact that if if loans aren't going sour, and some loans don't go sour, it means that banks aren't lending enough. Um, because uh, you know, if a bank is lending enough, then there should be a good proportion of those loans that do go bad just through natural you know attrition. Uh, and also, we've seen some substantial changes to the uh, bankruptcy laws here in uh, in, in in Australia. Mm. Um, we've seen that uh, emergency measures, which were introduced back in March, I believe, or early April, um, where uh, Josh Frydenberg had announced that there will be uh, some immunity for businesses to be able to trade insolvent. Uh, we note that those uh, provisions are going to be extended, and I wouldn't be surprised if they actually become more permanent law over time. Uh, the new measures really are designed so that where a business may find itself in, in some sort of uh, financial difficulty and could be struggling to meet its obligations, that the threshold for, for when creditors can come in and actually uh, force the company to uh, enter into either administration or into insolvency, uh, the thresholds for those, those debt numbers um, have been increased for liabilities, for small businesses that have liabilities up to a million dollars. In the past, a creditor could instigate a, um, a bankruptcy proceeding uh, or at least a creditor proceeding uh, for a debt as little as $2,500. Under these changes, um, creditors now need to uh, have a debt that's uh, greater than $20,000. Um, and then if that occurs, uh, the company now under these new rules has the ability to enter into advice from an insolvency specialist that will buy them 20 days to be able to come up with a plan to uh, work through how they might respond to getting themselves out of that situation. That plan then needs to be presented to the creditors in which the creditors then have 15 days to vote on that. Uh, now, if 50% if of the creditors accept that proposal, and often this, this requires some form of debt negotiation or debt restructuring, uh, terms of the debt might be uh, renegotiated. Often you might find creditors take a haircut as part of that renegotiation on the debt that's to be repaid, or the terms might be renegotiated, an extension of those terms. Um, Can I just ask, on those um, bank, bankruptcy law changes, is this something that's going to be in place ongoing or is this just throughout the pandemic? It's, 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 it's being extended at this stage temporarily, yeah. but I wouldn't be surprised if this becomes more of a permanent policy yeah. here in Australia. Um, the whole idea obviously is to ensure that, you know, businesses that are maybe on the edge right now mm. have some mm. means to be able to negotiate with their creditors. Under current law, uh, what would happen is that if you had a, uh, you know, a creditor uh, pursued you and you had no means to be able to um, and you're in default of a, a debt or a bill or a payment or yeah. whatever it may have been, uh, automatically you would call in the administrators and then control of your company would be handed over to an administrator, an external administrator, which is generally an accounting practice or an insolvency law specialist. Mm. Uh, under seems these... like those initial laws, they were a little bit too harsh in, in a sense. Like I think this is sort of a, a, a bit of a fairer 
um, law, if, if you ask me. Well, well, our laws are actually seen, our bankruptcy laws are actually seen as some of the harshest in, in the Western world. Yeah. Um, so this actually brings us in line with some of the laws that are seen in the UK and also under Chapter 11 bankruptcy law in the United States, where uh, corporations have the ability to at least um, maintain control of their own affairs mm. under this uh, under this initial proceeding. Uh, before an administrator is then appointed and, and before the owners of the business lose control of the company. Yeah. So it gives, it gives. I guess what it does is it gives the owners of a business an opportunity to try and raise capital, to negotiate with their creditors, mm. to come up with a plan in terms of restructuring so that all of a sudden some third party that comes in, you know, to prevent some third party who knows nothing about the business is really just an accountant, that, a glorified accountant that comes in and... and um, uh, you know, uh, is there to try and manage the business so that uh, most people will get some sense in the dollar. You know, this this provides a means for people to maintain their jobs and provides a means mm. for for people to um, for for business owners to to be able to continue the business in a viable manner through a restructuring uh, that might might be able to take place and uh, and hopefully. Uh, means that you know we, we don't have as many jobs shed as well during this downturn so because of the flexibility that it gives us now it doesn't mean that what it also means is that the owners of a business uh, no longer have the um, the criminal uh, uh, overhang of potentially trading insolvent as well so insolvency is when you have uh, debts that you cannot actually meet the repayments of you're actually out of cash and you can't meet those repayments well under these laws, there are a temporary relief for a business to continue trading um, in the in the event of insolvency. Uh, now, it doesn't allow you to continue to trade insolvent for in perpetuity, but what it does mean is at least gives you you know a good month, a month and a bit, to be able to continue to sell product and service to collect revenue. Uh, yes, you might be racking up a little bit more of a debt, so there's a limit to it. But at least it allows you to continue to run that business while you're going through some sort of restructuring that might be able to bring down the cost of running that business in that 35-day period so that the business can continue to maintain its customers and its clientele. So what happens with the old old rules as well if you were trading? Well, if you're insolvent and you uh, run out of cash to pay your bills and you continue to trade, you could actually end up in jail. Wow. Um, wow. So, uh, so there was the very serious penalties for trading insolvent. Ending up in jail, and also you mentioned losing control of of the company, so losing the ability to actually get out of the situation. Yeah, it must and, be such and, a terrifying um, thing for certainly for people to be going through at the moment. I mean, you know, I, I think these rules will just just help people feel a little bit safer um, coming out of COVID. So, look, it's it, the whole idea behind these changes is not to. Um, it's it's not to allow a bad business to continue running and no, racking up debts. No. But what it is saying is, look, let's take more of a common sense approach. We mm. know that we're going to have lots of businesses that through no fault of their own are yeah. going to be struggling. Yeah. Let's give them a fighting chance to at least negotiate with their landlords, with their you know suppliers, with their, um, with their banks, so mm. that they perhaps have a chance to work through this. Yeah. If a prudent and reasonable uh, arrangement can be... Um, can become to and yeah. and it's not a huge burden you only need 50 percent of all creditors to approve the restructuring for it to actually be enforced on all creditors mm -hmm. so you know you hope that uh, it allows you know employees who are working hard to uh, you know still retain their entitlements uh, for them to still you know obviously there's a positive 
you know, economic, um, you know, uh, cycle that happens if people are able to maintain their jobs and continue to spend. You know, there's this, you know, positive uh, feedback loop that, that ends up running through the economy. But for every business that goes bankrupt, for every employee who loses their job, there's then, then becomes that negative feedback loop that happens where, you know, defaults tend to spiral and cascade uh, in the wrong direction. Yeah. I like it. I, I like the time that it, it grants the business owners and the managers because one of the challenges is, is if you are trying to do a restructure to deal with potential equity investors or lenders uh, or creditors to try and work through it, it takes time, it, it, you know, and especially if you've got a few of them to deal with. That time is, is the best asset you've got then to work through those things. Absolutely. And also it avoids bringing an, an external administrator or, or someone else that's going to fire sale everything when there's potentially way more value to be realised. Yeah, yeah. Correct. And I suppose in the, it, like these small businesses that are, that are just going to try and open up after COVID, you don't even know where your position is until you've really opened your doors again for a lot yeah. of them. Yeah, so, absolutely. So they need a window of, of opportunity to, to work through some issues. I mean, I can tell you as a small business owner starting this business, I mean, there were... I reckon I was on the verge of trading insolvent for the first two years. <laughs> you know, I mean, you were you were living hand to mouth, um, uh, and you were and you were waiting on every you know paycheck that was that was coming in in order to be able to afford just you know just to keep the lights on. And uh, you know, if you had, if if we had a had you know just one of our clients not pay their bill. For an extended period of time you know we we would have you know probably found ourselves in some serious financial difficulty mm -hmm. in the early stages yeah. and i can imagine that you know given the current economic environment right now that uh there would be you know very good businesses that uh that are finding themselves in that situation where they're they're really sweating on the next payment and the next you know invoice um, and it just gives the, those businesses that probably are a viable business, but just because of the sort of circumstances we find ourselves in, uh, a fighting chance to get through it. Yeah, I agree. There's two things I like about this. Um, one is that uh, in Australia, we don't have a, a great culture of supporting risk-taking. Correct. These measures are, are just being a bit more supportive uh, of people that do want to take the risk of starting a new business. Mm. Um, and uh, and we've got a new generation of young people who are more and more willing to to take those risks and innovate and, and build new things, um, and, and they need to be supported. So one is on the bankruptcy law side of things, taking away the, the criminal penalties um, and giving a bit more flexibility to it, uh, and the other is with uh, what you were talking about, bank lending, Joel. Uh, and I think the greatest area that those changes in, in bank laws impact is lending to small businesses. Yeah. Because if the onus is on the bank, how does the bank assess the risk of a business that's only got six months of track record? Yeah. yeah. It's very difficult for the bank to make that assessment and then have the onus be on the bank um uh for for the entire amount and it's just shifting that balance a little bit and and that's fine uh and then the other thing that i like about this is that it goes beyond just the initial consequences uh, by the sounds of it the initial laws are there to more protect the creditors mm. uh so that if uh, an insolvency uh situation happens the creditors get a greater amount of protection but if one party gets more protection, that prematurely leads to the shutdown of a business, what are the things that are lost? 
and it's those second order consequences where maybe you could actually have people employed for longer and yep. they and those employees don't end up in debt themselves um, or uh, or defaults on their payments. So it's just taking a broader view and uh, and I like it. Yeah. Just, just to finish up though, Joel, is there anywhere where you could direct people if they're in this kind of situation where they, they think bankruptcy is, is likely? Uh, is there is there anywhere where they can get some information on, on what they can do or how, how to sort of go about thinking about a strategy just at this stage? Look, mo most people would have a, uh, most people in business would have a pretty close relationship with their accountant and most accountants would, uh, would be able to direct them to um, somebody who would be a specialist in insolvency or administration or bankruptcy um, proceedings. So the best thing to do would be to talk to your accountant and uh, and then um, with yourself and the accountant, uh, meet with these uh, bankruptcy specialists so that you can start to uh, plan, you know, what the what the solution might be or what a roadmap might be as a result of, uh, of these circumstances. Even more important than that is before you get into the, the situation is to have a business consultant or business coach of some kind. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty important as well. And I just think it keeps you accountable, doesn't it, you know, with what you're doing, so. It does. It, it costs money, but but the improvement you can get to your business is, is huge. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. All right, guys, we're going to have to take a very quick break and we're going to come back after this message. Want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund? Each day, clients of United Global Capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich. Book your seat at UGC's Financial Fast Track Seminars, where you'll learn the science behind selecting high-performance stocks and real estate, how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au slash events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. Okay, and welcome back. Uh, now, we're actually going to throw over to Brett this morning to talk to us about property and the fact that it's the cheapest it has been in 10 years. Yep, it's on sale. It's, it's cheaper than it's, it's ever been. Well, maybe not ever been, but... Uh, it's, it's actually cheaper to own a property now than it was 10 years ago based on the total outlay. Uh, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. And I've got a bit of a case study. It's all due to the, the cost of funds at the moment. So it's not so much that property is cheaper from a purchase price. It's the ability to fund the purchase of that is cheaper than it's ever been. Of course, that's due to the, the RBA rate being so low and the banks lending money at such a low rate. So it's really that that funds and loans are as cheap as they've ever been. But the way that plays out, and I've got a case study to try and explain this, um, I, I had a look at uh, a property uh, in, a, in a sort of medium suburb in Brisbane that sold in 2010 for 580000 so 10 years ago. Uh, if we look back at what the finance situation was back in 2010, the RBA rate was 4.75%, and banks were lending... Uh, on the uh, the variable rate at seven point eight percent. Yeah, right. So if, if you purchased a house then at that five hundred and eighty, and you took out a thirty year mortgage on that variable rate, 
you would have had monthly repayments of $4,176,000. By the time that 30-year term would expire, uh, you would have paid $1.5 million in total repayments. Right. Therefore, 923000 of that was the interest you would have spent or right. had to pay. Yeah. Now, and, and this is on the assumption that you borrowed the whole amount. I've got a different set of numbers for, you know, say an 80% LVR. If we come forward to today and that same property sold only a couple of months ago for 745000 so it's definitely grown in value and it's definitely more expensive to buy, but with the RBA down at a quarter of a percent and the variable rate from banks at you know, around 2.25% where a lot of loans are getting at the moment, your monthly repayments are $1,300 less mm. on, a, on a beer of property. So your really? monthly repayments on that at amount would only be $2,848. Wow, okay. And if, if you look at what your total repayments would be, if you if you use that for the whole 30-year term, you're paying back a million and twenty-five thousand which is $478,000 less than if you had bought the same house at a cheaper price in 2010. Wow. Yeah. So what's the message, Brett? If you're ever going to overextend yourself, now's the time to do it. Is that right? Well, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> two and a quarter percent. Um, what, what are the sort of strategies that you're, you're generating, Joel? We're delivering double-digit returns. God, yep. I'd be loading up. If I can buy something at $2 and sell it for 15 I'd buy as much as I could. <laughs> exactly. What about, exactly. Brett, what about the lending? Like, uh, you know, if banks aren't going to lend, <laughs> no one can actually buy. Well, banks are lending. Oh, well, that's not exactly true. There, there, there are plenty of people out there that are still getting loans. Yeah. Uh, look, there's probably a, a side story to this that's, that probably throws a little bit of a curveball into it is the majority of people, if you bought that home in 2010 and bought it at that variable rate, more than likely you would have refinanced down to a lower rate. So it's, yeah, okay. it's not entirely the way it is. Yeah. But in terms of being able to enter the market and, and forecast and budget for what you're going to need to afford, uh, property is actually cheaper now than it was in 2010 when you look yeah. at the total cost of ownership. We yeah. just, just wanted to touch on that lending again. So you think that um, you know there'll, there'll still be enough lenders around for people to actually get a loan? It's oh, not going to be hard you know, coming out of COVID to get, to get a loan at all? Uh, look, the, the challenge for most people in, in trying to get a new loan is going to be what their employment and income situation is for serviceability. Yeah. But I think we need to keep in mind that the, the banks, their biggest part of their business is lending and they yeah. have to continue lending to generate profits. So they're going to be as willing as anyone to try and find a way through this to continue to lend. Mm. Uh, and I guess we, obviously in Victoria and Melbourne, we've been impacted more because of our restrictions and the amount of businesses and people out of work. Uh, the rest of the country is not hit as hard. So I, I guess we're a little bit biased in our opinions about how this is impacting us. Yeah. But no, I don't see that there'll be people uh, or banks not lending. I think it's just going to be a matter of other people. They might have to change their, their criteria for how long a person holds a job or, sure. or how long they see the serviceability. But, but I'm sure, you know, the, the whole economy needs this to happen. And, and not only just because it, the banks need to lend, there's a lot of, especially people that are trying to enter the market, they're going to buy new homes and they're going to buy, in effect, they're buying jobs for people. So those people that are going to build those homes and mm. the infrastructure around it, you know, the economy yep. thrives on a lot of this construction. Yep. So I think as a whole, this will all get sorted out. Um, 
in terms of the banks being able to lend, people getting jobs. You know, it, it's in everyone's best interest to work through this as soon as you know we've got a solution to the restrictions. When people talk about banks not lending, I, I always think it's a bit of an overstated thing. If banks are tightening up their lending criteria, um, what it means is if last year the criteria meant that they lent loans to 100 types of people, then this year they're lending to 95 types of people. Right. Yeah, the majority of people are still going to be able to get their loan because the majority of people are employed, uh, they receive fortnightly or monthly paychecks, and they've got an employment history that lasts beyond six months. Mm-hmm. So most people are still going to be eligible for a new loan or a refinance. It's, yeah. it's just on the margins where people uh, might struggle under current banking conditions uh, compared to one year ago and two years ago. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point because it does get hyped up in the media and it you know it's, it becomes a bit of doom and gloom and people go, oh, I'm never going to get a loan and, you know, these poor kids are never going to get into the market and, you know, you do hear a lot of that around. Well, also keep in mind that these interest rates we're talking about that really drive the, the figures we've just discussed, they're likely to be around for at least two years, I would say, and, and potentially up to five years yeah. um, at these low rates. So, sure, if, if, if you're a bit uncertain now, you know, these, these circumstances should still be available to you when you are in a better position in six or 12 months. Yeah. yeah. Well, I can say that uh, in the US, Jerome Powell has clearly said that he doesn't expect to be raising interest rates for the next two years. Now, uh, the US 10-year Treasury bond market, which uh, takes its lead from the US overnight cash rate, um, you know, is the benchmark for most uh you know, 10-year government bonds around the world, and that's where most of the domestic loan lending prices itself from. So if the US is unlikely to be raising rates for a considerable period of time, it's highly unlikely that the rest of the world is going to be raising rates uh, for a considerable period of time as well. And in fact, the ability to, to keep that situation was extended uh, recently as well. Another policy shift, not in the last week, but prior to that was uh, the U.S. allowing a higher rate of inflation uh, on a long-term basis, which will allow them to keep interest rates even lower for longer. Interesting. Mm. Um, anything else to mention on the property market, Brett, from your end? Uh, look, probably the only other thing that was interesting that's happened this week was the, the Melbourne property market opened back up with, with a grand total of 10 virtual auctions that happened after zero last week. <laughs> Killing it. <laughs> so obviously, you know, significant increase and on the rise, uh, but a long way down from the roughly 1,000 they would be expecting around this time of year every week. What so, percentage increase is that? <laughs> well, by, from zero to 10, it's <laughs> infinite. Yeah, infinite. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, look, we're going to take another really short break and we'll be back after this message. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on. Or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance, or even a significant promotion or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capitals Advisors are experts in the areas of strategic financial planning, taxation, superannuation and self-managed superannuation funds, risk management, estate planning and investments. Don't let fate dictate your financial future. Take control today and contact United Global Capital for a no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. 
simply call 03 8657 7640 or email info at ugc.net.au and book your appointment today. Okay, welcome back, guys. Uh, now we're going to throw over to Louis now, and you're going to talk about um, if people know their number. I'm intrigued. What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, yes, the the most important number. It's not your pants size. Um, <laughs> your weight's not. It's not the. No, it's not your weight. It's not right, the you. number on the back of Scott Pendlebury. <laughs> uh, That's a good one. It's not the number 2010. Um, uh, when uh, when Collingwood last yeah, won a grand final, uh, and it's not the number of goals that Dom Sheed kicked in the 2018 grand final. <laughs> <laughs> that that low, number was low, one. Low was a really good one. Uh, this session's over now, isn't it? <laughs> I'm talking about the number that you need to be aiming for for your retirement planning, uh, and it's your target number. So. Uh, if uh, everyone should know what number are they aiming for for their total wealth creation in order for them to retire. So uh, people should know is the number that they're aiming for in retirement savings, is it $1 million? Is it $2 million? Uh, is it 3.7? Uh, because uh, differences in that number will make a big difference to whether you can actually retire or not. You start to get some context around um, uh, around what you need to do today in order to um, to take the actions to reach your number. So I'm going to help you today, uh, dear listeners, to work out what your magic number is. So the first thing to do is to think of how much income do you actually want to have in retirement? How much money do you need each month? If you want to have $5,000 a month of income in retirement for all of your living expenses, then uh, what you need is $60,000 a year. Um, or do you need $100,000 a year? Or do you need more of that to afford all the holidays and the spending that you want to do in retirement? So I'm going to pick a nice round number. I'm going to take $100,000 a year as your desired retirement income. The next thing to do is to work out how much you need in future dollars because of inflation, because $100,000 of income today is not the same as $100,000 of income in five years or 10 years or 15 years time. So I'll give you a bit of guidance around that now. If your re uh, retirement is in five years time, uh, then you need about 15% more. If your retirement is in 10 years time, you need about 30% more. And if your retirement's in 15 years' time, you need about 1.5 times more. So if you're aiming for this $100,000 of income and your retirement's uh, aim is for it to be in 10 years' time, you need about uh, 0.3 more. So 100,000 multiplied by 1.3, that's how you get an extra 30%. Uh, so what you actually need in 10 years' time is a retirement income of $130,000. Uh, how do we convert that into the amount of assets that you need on retirement? In order to generate a retirement income of $130,000, let's multiply that by 20. So your $130,000 multiplied by 20, you need $2.6 million. That's your magic number. 
And that's a bit of a conservative magic number, which is used by most financial planners, but most financial planners don't really get the returns that we get at UGC. Uh, so we're actually happy to, um, to to bank on a slightly higher level of returns. We tend to use a number that's closer to about 17. So rather than uh, a magic number for our clients um, being 20 times, it's 17 times. So instead of $2.6 million, it would be more like $2.2 million. But whether you want to be conservative or a bit more aggressive, it's somewhere in that range of $2.2 million of assets versus $2.6 million of assets. And that is your magic number, your most important number that you're aiming for. So Louis, the uh, the assumption between uh, twenty multiplying by 20 times or multiplying by 17 times, uh, I'm assuming that largely comes from an expectation around uh, what is a conservative level of return that uh, that a retiree could expect from their capital into the future once they're actually in retirement. And that would assume that uh, the client is able to generate a long-term sustainable return of somewhere between 5 and 6% per annum. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, and it's also whether it's including inflation or plus inflation. Uh, so it's a it's a rough number, and there's more things to discuss around it. Uh, if you use five percent, you get one outcome. If you use six percent, you get another outcome. Uh, and also, in some retirement planning, you will have a gradual drawdown of your retirement savings over a thirty or forty year period of time. So some people, when they do retirement planning, uh, they'll assume that over the life of their retirement, over 30 or 40 years, they're actually going to run out of money by the end of that period of time. Uh, in other retirement planning, um, you assume that you're going to earn enough of a return on your investments to pay your retirement income and grow your amount of retirement savings yeah. to keep up with inflation so that you actually never run out of money. Yeah. And it all comes down to what rate of return that you're willing to use. Are you willing to use um, a 5% including inflation if you're going to be really conservative or are you going to use 6% plus inflation if you're going to be um, a, a bit more realistic about the returns that you can get in growth assets? So that's what we look at there. Uh, and that's how we come up with uh, with your number that is uh, that is not your pants size. If your pants size is two point two million dollars, uh, two point two million, you've got a bit of a problem. Um, but uh, but that's the number that you're aiming for in retirement assets. So, what goes into this number when you're actually planning? And and the thing which I then do next with clients is I'll look at what is your starting point today. And the first thing to look at is what is your current superannuation balance minus what is your home loan? Because if you were to theoretically retire today, yes, you'd get all the money of your super accounts, but you'd also have to pay off your home loan. Yeah. And for most people in the early stages of their um, financial life cycle, in fact, for most people right up until the, the midpoint or sort of two thirds of the way through, mm. the amount of money they've got in super is a few hundred thousand but the amount of their home loan is also a few hundred thousand, probably more. So yep. most people for most of their lives actually have a negative number. Yeah, okay. That's an and interesting way of looking at it. It's a smart way of looking at it. Yeah, because when you retire, 
you're not going to you're not going to suddenly have no home to live in. You still mm. got to live in a house, yeah. Uh, and you can't sell that asset. Um, if if you are planning on downsizing, yeah, you could include some money on that. But the reality of downsizing is most people will downsize to a smaller location in a better area, yeah, and yeah. not actually get a lot of money out of their downsize. Mm. So, I take the super account balance minus the home loan they've currently got. And then we can add other investments that they already have. So if you've already got a share portfolio or, or cash savings, you can add that. Mm. Um, or you can add the equity of those investment assets. So if you've got an investment property, but it hasn't yet grown to be more than the debt, well, then it's got a net value of zero. Um, or if it does have equity, well, then yes, you can add the equity to that. And that's how you look at your number today. Right. So... From a financial planning point of view, yes, we look at cash flow. Yes, we look at optimizing tax. We look at all these things that we do. But the most important thing to always be aware of is what is your actual net value? How are you progressing your total asset value minus your debts towards that retirement number that you're aiming for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Good, good advice. And I, I might need to work a little bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> Right. You might need to, yes. Oh, yes. Most most people do. Most people get a little bit scared when they see where they actually are right now. Yeah. Uh, but that's generally the incentive that people need to get started. Yeah, absolutely. On, on, on doing the things that we talk about. And the yeah. first fundamental is getting your cash flow right uh, and then having that mindset shift of not just being good with your cash flow but starting to accumulate assets. And mm-hmm. that's where the big difference comes in. Yeah. Good, good way to look at it. I think that's that's really, really insightful. All right, guys, we're going to follow up with our last segment for the day, and that is you can't be serious. Now, I was screwing my nose up on the phone, which you may have seen earlier. Uh, our listeners won't be able to see this, but Joel has n- a not-so-G-rated one for us this morning. <laughs> well, <laughs> anything left. I've got to be honest with you, even this one shocked me a little bit. Um, it's got to be A factory bad. in Vietnam has been caught recycling and washing used condoms. A factory in Vietnam has been busted for washing and recycling thousands of condoms, used condoms, and some of them unsuspecting customers. Police swooped on the apartment in the south of the country, this is in Vietnam, where they found over 300,000 unlabeled and unpackaged condoms. Uh, Detectives say that the woman would receive a weekly consignment of these condoms from an unidentified person, and she would then wash them, dry them, and then remodel them on a wooden dildo. <laughs> 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 well, oh, my God. I mean, it's got, wow. to, got to have come from uh, some kind of uh, brothel or something, I think. Well, <laughs> prob- probably coming from a brothel, yeah, yeah. I would say. Wow. That is gross. Please, someone pick, pick this up and make this a little bit better for me. Who's next? <laughs> okay, well, this is way more G-rated. In fact, it's, it's not so much a, a funny, you can't be serious, but an interesting fact that came to me by one of uh, UGC's valued staff members, James Mitchell. Shout out to you, who's a, a big tennis fan, and obviously knowing that the you can't be serious is based on the Super Mac. Oh, oh Brett, you've dropped out for a moment. He's frozen. <laughs> We might kick over to you then, um, Louis. Yeah, he can pick it up again. Oh, no, you're back. back. He's back. back. I think I'm back. 
Yep. All right, I'll kick it off again. So sure. um, James highlighted that uh, in the recent US Open, uh, by the quarterfinal stage, every player was born in the 90s, which is the first time it's ever happened. So there's a potential changing of the guard. Any any tennis followers would know there's been the big four, especially in men's tennis, in, in yep. Djokovic, Nadal, Federer and Andy Murray have dominated. Uh, and then when team, Dominic Team actually won the US Open, it was the first player born in the 90s to win a Grand Slam final. Wow. So wow. there's potentially a changing of the guard. But I would caveat by saying, well, Djokovic was disqualified and Nadal and Federer didn't even play. So we'll yes. wait and see. Fair enough. Okay. But it still doesn't make you feel as young as what you used to, does it? Yeah. <laughs> Other times catching us all. That's it. That's right. Um, I think you two are still releasing albums too. Yeah. <laughs> no, right. um, so I've got a case of, um, of a stockbroker. Uh, people often talk about trading the stock market as uh, just gambling. Uh, but in this case, we've got a stockbroker who was also a gambler. Uh, and this really sounds like uh, the, the plot of a movie. This is dating back to 1977 and 1978. But the case has only just been solved and gone to courts where oh. the guy has been uh, proven guilty. Oh, wow. But this guy was a stockbroker. Um, also had some some gambling debts, and after being visited by thugs to recover the debts, and not obviously not being a good enough stockbroker to cover his gambling losses, um, he turns to uh, the the next most logical occupation, which was robbing banks. <laughs> <laughs> but he held down his job as a stockbroker. Wow! So what he would actually do is he would uh, do his job. Uh, and then in his lunch break, he would uh, get up his Dutch courage. He would, uh, quote, he would get boozed and rob a bank. Wowee. Yeah. That is incredible. Go. It's a little bit like that Catch Me If You Can movie, huh? That's right. Um, but it, it gets even more movie-like when it says that he would uh, walk into a bank with a water pistol. Oh, no. <laughs> wearing a hat and fake sunglass, uh, fake a moustache. <laughs> with uh, with fake glasses. Oh goodness! Wow. Totally. So, so he never even disguise. used a proper gun. Never even used a proper gun. Never even used a proper gun. Just got loaded, put on a cheesy disguise, a plastic gun, um, and uh, and would would rob a bank. And he got away with it. Uh, this happened in 1977 and 1978. Uh, was never caught until the case was reopened uh, within the last couple of years. Uh, and they got him with uh, with fingerprint technology. Oh, wow. How, how old is he, he is now? Well, you don't know that sort of he's, detail. He's now seventy one years old. Okay. Well, he's still he's still uh, you know young enough that it would take a, a hit on your life. So I mean, if you're in your nineties, you just wouldn't care. <laughs> but still, a, a fair innings to go. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Don't do that, guys. If you're out there listening, not a good idea. Just be be a better stockbroker. I think. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Choose your stocks better. That's it. All right, guys, we're going to have to leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your input this morning and to our listeners for tuning in. Have a fabulous weekend, and hopefully this weather holds out a bit that we get a little bit of sunshine. Have a great one. I sure hope so. Thanks, Steph. Thanks, thank Steph. You. Thanks, listeners. Bye. See Bye. you next week.